0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. We are, uh, it's a Friday, and we are finishing up a alumni summit, and our focus has been the missionary mindset this week. And I think it's been heartening and strengthening to all of us present. It's been a beautiful time. And the fellowship, I would say probably ranks at the highest level. It's sort of hard because the messages have been really powerful, but the the fellowship, I think, just being around strong Christians in an hour where Christianity feels sort of feeble uh, has been really, really encouraging. Uh, but it might seem strange that we're talking about World War One in the midst of you know all this stuff on missions and and everything, and yet you know, hey, you. We're in the middle of a Daily Thunder series, and I can't violate that. You know, that's sacred territory. And of course, I'm loving it too, which is another one of the reasons why I'm going to force it through, even if you didn't want it. <clears throat> but this is part 18. It's called 21 Gun Salute. And as I was putting this message together, because 21 Gun Salute's a great name for this one. And, you know, we've been hanging out in various countries in the first 17 episodes. And I was almost thinking of doing an analysis of all my messages and figuring out which countries was sort of the dominant country in that. But we spent a good deal of time in France. Of course, that's where most of World War I is going to be played out so far. But we had some time in Belgium, and because that's where the violation of Belgium neutrality is going to start with German aggression, and which is going to bring Great Britain in. And Russia has been in the storyline, but not as much as probably they should be, but they're still a small player so far. But their early attack, where they were able to awaken from their slumberous state and attack before uh, what would be considered the 40th day, would be the day that the Germans figured uh, Russia would be ready to attack. And because they attacked early, that actually drew troops, divisions away from the Schlieffen plan, the Germans' plan to capture Paris in 39 days. And that's actually one of the reasons why the Germans are going to fall to pieces at what's called the Battle of the Marne. But that's still somewhat of a spoiler alert, even though I think I've been fairly clear uh, of where that's headed. But I, I haven't, I don't know that I've fully declared it yet. You know, I haven't said who won the Battle of the Marne. Uh, but it's a, it's a it's a critical moment in World War I because it's going to Shift the entire tenor of a war that looked like it was going to be done quick. Everyone expected a quick war. And you know, a couple months would be the longest. And now suddenly, because of the Battle of the Marne, everything is going to shift, and we're going to go from a movement warfare, where it's actually like ancient warfare where you're actually on the battlefield, marching, fighting, uh, moving, uh, you know, playing a fife. And I mean, literally, that's how it was, uh, to suddenly this thing called trench warfare, which is then going to gobble up lives in the millions over the next four years. And it's a very, very difficult thing to study. And so I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to bring edification out of certain aspects of this which means I might do a fast-forward button. I know it's a total violation if you're teaching war history, but I'm not trying to teach war history. I'm trying to utilize history to train the soul in Christian truth. And so I feel like I can violate some of those protocols for going through something historically, but I do want to touch on some of the key things that do make it what it was so that we can understand it. But we've been in uh, Great Britain as well. We haven't really taken any time, a lot of time, in Austria-Hungary. We had it one bullet that was shot in Sarajevo, uh, which is going to start the war, and that's when Franz, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was shot by Gavrilo Princip. But outside of that, we haven't spent a lot of time in Serbia nor in Turkey, which is you know, the Ottoman Empire, is, is an ancient empire that's still around at this exact time when World War I is starting. It's going to play a very interesting role as we progress, in the story of World War One, But then we've also done a little uh, time over, or spent a little time over in America and Mexico, which feels very weird uh, when you're dealing with a European uh, war, which is what World War I was. It was generally European, but it's gonna spread. Japan is going to be in World War I, uh, and then you're gonna get into the Middle East. It's like there's a lot, it really is a world war. That's a good description of it. But we're gonna go back to the Wild West in this one because in a strange sense I'm responsible as a storyteller in this to keep you up to speed with something that is taking place on the opposite side of the opposite side of the world that is going to play a part when we get to 1917 and so as we're in 1914 which makes it hard because it's like it's quite a ways off but that has to do with America America is a very important player in World War 1 but it is a player that does not want to have anything to do with World War I. And it actually is doing whatever it can to stay out of World War I. However, there is a meddler, if you guys remember our guy named William, and uh, who, again, he has multiple ways that you could say his name, Wilhelm. Uh, and is, I, I, whether or not, I, I've even been corrected on that one, that it should be something like Wilhelm. And it's like, okay, you know, I'm just happy if I get the Wilhelm out. But I've then changed that to William just because it's so much easier to say. Hopefully we all know uh, Wilhelm is another way that some people will say it, right? And, but hopefully we know who we're talking about. The Kaiser of Germany is very interested in distracting America because the one thing that he doesn't want is for American manufacturing to be producing for the Allies all of their materials, whether it's ships or whether it's uh, ammunitions or whatever it is, they're the supplier. They're actually the lender, too, for like Great Britain, who is losing all their money in this war. They're, they're like, they can't survive long in this, even though they're the wealthiest nation to start out. At the end of World War I, the wealthiest nation in the world is going to be America. America is going to massively prosper through World War I, and the center of international banking is going to go from London to New York in World War I. And so this nation that we're in, know, almost has a uh, love-hate relationship with World War I. It actually tremendously benefited us as a nation, though I don't think any of us is a real sponsor of all that flowed out over the last 100 years. I think we'd almost rather trade out, uh, being the, uh, the financial center of the world for uh, not having the last 100 years of communism really that's what's going to be one of the big things that as we sort of go through the story that we're going to see comes out of this is what's going to happen with the Russian empire which is why Russia is very very important in this storyline so let's go to the wild west and to our friction that is being developed between Mexico and America which is sponsored by none other than Kaiser William. i know that sounds funny i need to say it kaiser wilhelm if i say it that way but by our King William, how, how about that? So a 21-gun salute. This is from the U.S. Army Center of Military History, and it's weird because I, if I was asking myself, what, where did that come from? What is a 21-gun? I mean, I know what a 21-gun salute is, it's a statement of honor, but where, what, why 21? Where do you get a number 21 from? And so uh, this is the official history of the 21-gun salute. The tradition of rendering a salute by cannon originated in the 14th century. Originally, warships fired seven-gun salutes. Land batteries, having a greater supply of gunpowder, were able to fire three guns for every shot fired on a boat. Hence, the salute by shore batteries was 21 guns. So this cannon on the boat could fire seven, but this land battery over here in the same time could fire 21. So three for every one on the boat, which is where you get the 21-gun salute. The 21-gun salute became the highest honor a nation rendered. Great Britain, the world's preeminent sea power in the 18th and 19th centuries, compelled weaker nations to salute first. Well, that was nice. And they had to salute with 21 guns to show honor and respect for the greater power. Eventually, by agreement, the international salute was established at 21 guns. Now, internationally, it's recognized as 21 guns, Although the United States did not agree on this procedure until August 1875. That's classic United States. It's like, you guys can use the metric system, but not us. You know, We are, we are the uh, anomaly in the system. And so even with the 21-gun salute, we did not uh, buy into that until August 1875. Even though in 1842, the presidential salute was formally established at 21 guns. In 1890, regulations designated the national salute, so this is in America, as 21 guns. Today, the national salute of 21 guns is fired in honor of a national flag, the sovereign or chief of state of a foreign nation, a member of a reigning royal family, and the president, ex-president, and president-elect of the United States. It is also fired at noon of the day of the funeral of a president, ex-president, or president-elect. So whether or not that plays a huge role in what we're saying, it sort of does, because there's going to be a 21-gun salute right back in this time period that is going to start something, and it's an interesting storyline. Again, I'm, I have to go back, even though this might seem strange, we're in the Battle of the Marne, we're at a key moment where John French has just agreed, with the tears streaming down his face, to join uh, Joseph Joffre to attack the right flank of Kluke and then i'm like all right let's visit america and mexico and it's like what what are we doing here well we have so many storylines simultaneously and isn't that the way a good like drama series works when they have multiple series they they bait you here and you know leave you hanging and then go off to somewhere else that's what i'm doing <clears throat> the crisis now since i had to you know put the the date on the screen it sort of gives away that How does this fit into World War I when it's February of 1913? We're in September of 1914, and now suddenly Eric is going way back in time. And it's because there are certain events that are taking place. Remember, sponsored by Germany. Germany wants to create a distraction. Germany knows that Der Tag, which is what they call the day, where they're going to attack through Belgium and down into Paris is coming. They've been preparing for it. They, they were just waiting for the moment. So when Gavrilo Princip's gunshot goes off and Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia and Russia mobilizes, they feel like they have cover for, to excuse themselves to go on the attack. And that's what they do. They are leveraging this situation to do something that they have long planned. And part of that long plan is dealing with America. They want America to stay asleep. They want America to be distracted with its own home front issues, which is what we specialize in, by the way, guys. Up to that point, foreign policy for America was we do not go over and slay foreign monsters. That is not what we do. And George Washington, that was his his speech as he was even saying farewell. And he's telling America, if you want to keep this together, this great republic that we've started, you cannot deal with European conflicts. Do not be drawn in by them. You make sure you keep your borders and you keep it strong. So it's like it has some wisdom to it, but at the same time, it's a hard one as a Christian to reason through. If you have strength and there's someone on the other side of the world that could use that strength to be protected, what are you going to do? Just keep your strength? It's a very interesting tension that's going to come up in World War I because Woodrow Wilson, the president during World War I, has doggedly decided that he is not going to deal with World War I. He just wants peace, and so he's going to be the arbiter of peace, and that's what he's trying to do. Meanwhile, William is doing his best to create havoc for him uh, down in Mexico so that all of the energies of the Americas are placed right there with Mexico. And it's a very interesting tension that is taking place, And in a sense, we're being played, Mexico's being played, we're all sort of falling into this thing, and William is licking his chops. The crisis. So here's Francisco Madero, and he's the 37th president of Mexico. And I'm not going to speak a lot about this guy, however, he's going to be killed. Now, that wasn't actually that abnormal at that time. Uh, It was a very unstable government in Mexico at this time. But he's the 37th president. Now look at this, the 39th president, the guy that follows in, and we skipped one. How did we get from 37 to 39? It's because there was a guy that came into the presidency for like an hour and a half, and I don't have his name to give, but let's just uh, say that's how unstable the government was, right? And this guy is the one that killed Madero, okay? And his name, if I can say it, Victoriano Huerta. And uh, so this guy is a bad guy okay that's the way he's going to be painted up and he's just the bad guy and this is going to be happening at the same time president Woodrow Wilson is stepping into power into his presidency that this is all happening so and there's our, our guy Woodrow Wilson the 28th president of the United States a very astute man, uh, a scholarly man, the most scholarly president we 've ever had, the most learned bookish president we 've ever had, and he 's a peace guy, so he 's a pacifist, he doesn't fight, he reasons, and yet he is going to be the president during the Mexican Revolution and World War I. That is the great irony of his presidency is we 've probably never had a more pacifistic president ever than Woodrow Wilson, and he's the president that violates all of our policy that we've held as the United States to ever involve ourselves in a foreign war, and he's the president that pulls the trigger on that. It's the great irony of the American side of World War I, but he's a guy that if you ask me, like, what's your opinion on Woodrow Wilson? I don't know. It's like, I almost want to say, I'll get back to you on that. I can't figure this guy out of whether I like him or I don't. I identify with certain aspects of him, but he is arrogant. And I'm just not attracted to the arrogance. I like the fact that he wants to change America. And I like the fact that he wants to do things, he wants to get the junk out of Washington, D.C. In fact, he's gonna remind you of a certain president that we recently had. And where he he has this, but there's this cocksure attitude that he has. Like, I'm president, and now I'm boss. And so if you don't think like me, you're out. It's a very interesting dynamic that's going to enter into America. So the rise of Huerta. How do I say it? Huerta? Huerta. Wasn't that what I said? What in the world? Get this uh, guy from Mexico in here and he's going to correct everything I say. This is dangerous. The rise of Huerta. How's that? Okay. Sounds just like what I said earlier, doesn't it? <laughs> and the rise of Woodrow's ire. So this is from uh, Barbara Tuckman in the book The Zimmerman Telegram. The Zimmerman Telegram is going to be the event, and that's why I'm trying to build up to this, that is going to change America. Up until what's called, it's an event, it's called The Zimmerman Telegram, sort of like the Battle of the Marne, it's going to be a huge moment in World War I, where the entire perspective of America is going to shift from anti-war to we must go to war. This one event. And it's going to involve Mexico and American relations, and it's going to involve Germany. And so all these things are going to come together. But I sort of need to build the storyline for that. So Barbara Tuckman says this. And this is talking about the, uh, the overtaking of the government by, by Huerta. After 10 days of terror and bombardment, 10,000 were dead, and Mexico had a new Iron Man who, behind the blood and cannon smoke, had made his spring to power. He was General Victoriano Huerta, a pure-blooded Indian with a flat nose, a bullet head, a sphinx's eyes behind incongruous spectacles, and a brandy bottle never far from hand. Wily, patient, laconic, and rarely sober, he had risen carefully through the army, step by step to its command, serving under both Diaz and Madero, whom he now betrayed and arrested. Okay, we got a bad guy here. And this guy is not stable. And you know, with a brandy bottle in hand and rarely sober, this is not necessarily the guy that anyone's wishing to lead the country, right? And we're already in a volatile time of relations with the United States and Mexico. You see, we have grown up in a time, if you've been in America, where we don't have a volatile relationship. We have issues of immigration that are very real, but it's not like the threat of war. Back then it was the threat of war, but it wasn't just war with Mexico, it was Japanese-Mexican ties that the Japanese would want to invade through Mexico. And which is weird, I don't know that any of us have ever had the thought, right? But you go to World War II and you recognize this was a very real thing, because that's what, Japan's not gonna end up coming through Mexico in World War II, but they're going to bomb Pearl Harbor which was still one of the concerns at this time, which is weird to many of us who never spent a lot of time thinking about uh, Japanese, Mexican, uh, American relations. It's just not really in our thought processes. So history, this is Barbara Tuckman, says, history chose this precise moment to inaugurate Woodrow Wilson as the new president of the United States. In his way, he too was an apostle, not a messiah like Madero, but rather a Luther, intent upon a reformation, schooled, incorruptible, and sure of his purpose, mandated by himself as by the electorate to sweep out the old iniquities and the new greeds and redeem the level of American politics. I'm just gonna pause there, okay? Because everything you're hearing about this man, Woodrow Wilson, as he's coming in, sounds very similar to how Donald Trump came in. It is an interesting meditation. And he is going to have about, uh, he's going to be rather brusque like that too. And he's, but he's very different than Trump in a lot of ways. Trump is a guy who would, you know, you mess with America, you're a goner. This guy is the pacifist, Woodrow Wilson. So he's very different in a lot of ways, but it's interesting because America was at a point where the filth in government was so much that they wanted a guy to come in that was totally outside the system, that had no governmental experience, but was a guy who had values, and a guy who was moral, and a guy who wanted the best for America as opposed to to gain from American prosperity. And in comes Woodrow Wilson. Reform, this is speaking of Wilson still, reform was what the time demanded, and reform was the device on Wilson's banner. With him, he brought into office other devotees of the New Freedom, among them William Jennings Bryan, the most improbable Secretary of State America ever had, and Josephus Daniels, a pacifist, listen to this, as Secretary of the Navy. He sticks a a pacifist over the Navy going into World War I, okay? To them, as to Wilson, General Huerta was everything that was abhorrent. So these guys, remember, they're wanting to get the filth out of America, but they have filth down in Mexico. That, I mean, how dare they? Right across the border, there I mean, 10,000 dead in the assassination of the uh, president, and Wilson comes riding in on his white horse. And this is going to set up a very unique tension. The murder of Madero, a reform president like himself, occurring only a few days before his own inaugural, brushed Wilson almost too closely and shocked him inexpressibly. It need not have, since hardly a ruler of Mexico in a hundred years had failed to die a violent death, but Wilson felt Madero's death like a brother's. Perhaps a sense that it might have been his own added to his indignation. And Barbara Tuckman continues, from the day he took office on March 4th, 1913, He was obsessed by the idea that it was his clear duty as a knight of the new freedom and foe of the interests to tear General Huerta, the usurper, off the backs of the Mexican people. He determined that Mexico should be ruled by the consent of the governed and that it somehow devolved upon him to accomplish this goal. Now, he's the president of the United States, not the president of Mexico, just to clarify. However, in a strange way, he is going to inherit his presidency and feel morally responsible to, in a sense, be the president of Mexico too. And he's going to be telling, almost like they're his children, you know, get over my knee and I'm going to give you a spanking. And this isn't going to translate well to the Mexican people. As I could just imagine, if some dad came into your life when you were little and said, get over my knee, it doesn't translate when someone else's dad is disciplining you. That's not their place. In fact, you would even look at them and say, you're not my dad. That's what you would say instinctively, and that's exactly what's going to happen in this situation. It's like, Woodrow, 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 no, 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 no. Woodrow. So to called him the Puritan of the North. I don't think that was a compliment, uh, by the way. However, that's what he translates to. He's this goody two-shoes. He's this guy with high values and high morality. The guy carries a brandy bottle with him. He's drunk half the time. You know, how dare he take over the government? You know, I got drinking alcoholism and all these things. You know, that's not fit for a leader of any country to do. And this is actually his thinking. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's incorrect, as if I'm a sponsor of alcoholism. It's just, it's very interesting because like, Woodrow, why don't you manage your nation here? And let the Mexican people manage theirs. And yet, that isn't how it's going to play out. So this is a quote. Listen to this quote. I am going to teach the Latin American people to elect good men. This is like one of his mandates that he feels he has from the American people who elected him president. Somehow he translated it that way. So these are some quotes, because I, I really, to s- slim down this message, I just had to give some quotes to give the feel of it. There's great tension in this. This guy lays in bed at night thinking about it, about Huerta, and how Huerta is not really the president. He will not acknowledge the guy as president. He will not even say his name out loud. So he's, ca- he's called, like, that man. Uh, and so these are some quotes. That scoundrel Huerta. Okay, he did say it there. Uh, Wilson said, the usurper, that desperate brute that person that calls himself the president of Mexico. And then when the British weren't standing with him, it really hurt him. He was hurt by this, the fact that, you know, the British don't appreciate my moral position on Huerta because to them it's a governmental thing. It is not moral, it's like, hey, you're creating a crisis, militarily speaking, financially speaking, for the international banking because you're not recognizing their president. And 16 other nations have recognized their president, but the United States refuses, and they're holding out in doing it. And then Wilson also added, it's impossible to regard the act of Huerta as otherwise as, an, as, as otherwise as an act of bad faith towards the United States. Everything Huerta does does not acknowledge Wilson's authority over him. And, I mean, a good question is, should he acknowledge Woodrow Wilson as his superior? Should he acknowledge, you know, that Wilson is over him? And so he's just sort of like, why do you keep talking up there, O Puritan of the North? You know, I'm trying to run my country down here. That's not your country. That's Madero's country. Who you killed? And so we need a, a good election that actually is of the people for the people. And we need to do this right. I'm going to teach the Latin American people how to elect good men, and you're not one of them. You, you know, I'm, He's like dedicated himself to getting where to out of office. Pressing the moral position." thrusting your morality onto someone else Um. doesn't work. And so you could have a moral position, but what you do with it and how you influence the world around you, there's a art form to it that you can have Christianity, but if you force your Christianity upon other people, it's not real Christianity. And that's like the concept of legislating morality. In other words, we feel like if we can pass laws, we can save our nation and make our nation a moral nation, that starts in the interior zone of the life. So when Constantine is going to actually force people into Christianity, he actually is creating an aberration to Christianity. He is going to disturb the integrity of what Christianity is. You can't legalize or moralize or force something from the outside. The way the Spirit of God awakens a soul is in and through an inner work. He can appeal from the outside, but it has to be something of agreement within. For me to disciple someone, there has to be a readiness and a submission and a willingness and even an ask. When someone is coming to Ellerslie in a strange way, the way I translate it is, they're asking to be discipled, which is why one of our main requirements for coming to Ellerslie is you have to prove that you want to be here. We don't want the arm-twisted person coming in and say, yeah, my mom is going to make me do this. Otherwise, I can't get a car. And we're like, no, we're, we're not interested in that. We're not interested in you being arm-twisted into discipleship because then it's not real discipleship. Then it's you going through the motions so that you can get a car. And that's actually damaging to your soul. It's not just damaging to this environment, which, by the way, it is a dead weight on this environment. We don't want that. And there is a certain territory that we are all given. Now, if you've ever heard me speak on government, I'm going to speak on jurisdiction. It's one of the key principles of American government. Juris, diction. Diction is speech. Juris is ruling territory or legal territory. So the legal territory over which I have say, that's your jurisdiction. Woodrow Wilson does not have jurisdiction over Mexico. Now, for with all his brainy act potential, That's some weird vulnerability he has is not understanding his jurisdiction in this situation. It's fascinating, but even in America, when we understand jurisdiction, I recognize that as an individual, someone can't force me in this country to think a certain way, to believe a certain thing. In other words, there's a certain autonomy to the individual life where I have jurisdiction over my thoughts and over my conscience. And as a result, that's always been protected in our history as a country, which is a unique thing. That isn't always protected in every country. So if you don't believe something, if you don't bow down to this God, then you will be killed. But in our country, there's been a preservation of that individual jurisdiction, that territory of individual belief. But then, as a, as a family, I have jurisdiction over my home, which is interesting to think that the President of the United States cannot tell me how to feed my kids or how to teach my kids or train my kids. It's like that's actually under my jurisdiction. Now if I'm harming my kids, if I'm abusing my kids, that brings in the federal government or the state government or the local government to actually intervene because I'm actually violating different laws that they have jurisdiction or say over. But if I stay within the boundaries of law, there is a protection. And I can handle my home in a manner that is peaceful, that is life-giving, that is, according to me, healthiest for my kids. And the President of the United States, though he is of greater authority in the land than me, he is not of greater authority in my home. Isn't that an interesting statement? That I, in my home, have greater authority than the President of the United States does over my kids. The President of the United States can't come to my house and, and say to one of my kids, go down and clean your room. It'd be very inappropriate. My kids could look at him and go, "Uh, you're not my dad. (laughs) And it would be an awkward moment for all of us, right, if that happened. However, if any of you have ever been in a situation where there's a violation of jurisdiction, you just feel like something's off, that's what the Mexicans are feeling in this situation. I actually can get into their shoes very quickly on this and be like, Woodrow Wilson, what in the world are you doing? I remember, it's a a very vivid uh, memory for me. Uh, it was Thanksgiving when I was, I mean, I'm guessing I'm going to put myself around 10 or 10 or 11. And these, all these families came over to our house. And it was one of those things where all the parents are in one room and all the kids are in another. And, you know, I have a certain meal that I like for Thanksgiving. And it involves certain things that are, you know, served and other things that do not make their way into my plate. For instance, the, the this, you know, some people like beans, uh, like green beans for Thanksgiving. Green beans mess up my my thanksgiving meal okay because my thanksgiving meal involves turkey it involves mashed potatoes it involves gravy it involves sweet potatoes and it involves cranberry sauce all right that's it okay it can it can it can sometimes have stuffing if the stuffing is sort of that good variety as opposed to the ones where people are getting fancy with it it's like no no if it's fancy stuffing i don't want it But if it's sort of that stovetop version, it's like, okay, I might take a little of that. Okay, so there are some exceptions here. However, in this situation, I had my meal, and it was all piled up on, on my plate. And you know how you get excited for the Thanksgiving meal? And it's just like, this is great. And I'm so excited to dive in. And this one dad comes in, and his wife had made some kind of green bean casserole. And none of the kids had eaten any of it. So he was upset about that. And he goes, guys, you are going to eat some casserole. And he went around and he took a big scoop of it and stuck it right on top of my masterpiece. Green bean casserole on top of my Thanksgiving masterpiece. Okay, Now, I don't know how, how you guys are handling this, but what is going on inside of me is that I'm thinking, who in the world are you? to be defining what is in my Thanksgiving meal because it was a weird thing because I didn't have words for it, but it really like offended me at a deep level. And I was mad about that for years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have forgiven him, uh, by the way. (laughs) But it's interesting because my parents have the authority to slop a a bunch of green bean casserole on top of my Thanksgiving meal. And I may not like it, but it is their position to do that. They can tell me what to eat if they want to say, Eric, you need to have some of this. Now, hopefully my parents would say, do you want to create a space for this? Instead of right on top. (laughs) However, when that violation occurs, it's like something is wrong, but you don't always have words for it. It's like, who are you to be saying that to me? That's what Huerta and the Mexican people are saying, even though the Mexican people are not in a healthy place right now because they're scared of Huerta. I mean, there was just an interior revolution inside of Mexico. 10,000 people died. And so people are living in fear. It's not like they like Huerta, but who is this other guy out there that is making all his opinions known about what they should be doing? It's like, this is our house. You stay in your house. So there's Woodrow Wilson, Uh, listen to this quote, and you guys can sort of feel the moment. The Mexican people must be given democracy, ready or not. Okay, that is, it's like thrusting Constantinian-style Christianity upon people. It's just like, you know, if you want a government by the people for the people, it'd be better if you teach them and give them options and help them and serve them with truth as opposed to force a form of government upon them, I don't know if this is going to go so well, Woodrow. And I don't know what I should call him because Woodrow sounds like a last name too, isn't it funny? So, But Mr. Wilson, I'm not exactly sure if this is going to go over so well. So Barbara Tuckman says this, Wilson was not to be swerved from his self-appointed mission to unseat that person who calls himself the president of Mexico. Although some 16 nations had recognized Huerta's right to call himself president, Huerta to remain to Wilson a symbol of political sin, a golden calf around whom backsliding Mexicans and dollar diplomats were bowed in worship, an idol whom he, bidden by a voice from some inner Sinai, must smash. That's why I say, if I were to stop right here and say, how do you guys feel about Woodrow Wilson? You have to admire his moral stance. And that's why it's an interesting tension for me because it's like, well, I mean, I sort of would like to have a president like that, or would I? In other words, you could have truth and misuse it. You could be right and be wrong. And that seems odd that you can be right and be wrong simultaneously, but how many times have we seen that? Where, have you ever had it where you're talking with someone and they're just not getting it? You've been frustrated because you've been trying to lead them to Christ for a long time, and you blow your top, you get mad, and you start yelling truth at them instead of, serving them and loving them. It's like suddenly you are right in what you're saying. I'm sure it's correct, but you are 100% wrong in what you're doing. My sister once used the illustration. He said, uh, since truth is a person, if you separate the facts of truth or the data of truth from Jesus and you just give true like doctrine, but you don't give it the way Jesus would give it, you're actually harming instead of helping. So if you had good theology and you're whipping it out into this generation and speaking it to this generation, but not the way Jesus would, that truth, though it be truth, is actually harmful and not helpful. And what we have is a symbol of that in Woodrow Wilson. I would say the guy means well. I'm not going to question his motives. I mean, for all this guy's going to go through agony in this situation. He's rolling around in his bed at night. He feels responsible to save the world. And that's going to continue on. I don't know how deep I can go into it, but Wilsonian diplomacy. This guy is going to be laboring, talking with all the world leaders, and guess what? Germany just wants to keep them talking. So they, they, oh, talk to us more about your peace plans. Let us hear them. Focus here, Wilson. And he falls for it over and over again. He's like, oh, they want to talk. The Germans want to talk peace. And so I'm going to go, and we're going to spend some time talking about peace. As long as you're not fighting over in Europe... We'll talk peace with you. Meanwhile, the Germans have no interest in peace. And so he's played very easily by the system around him. He's like naive to the politics. He's just a good guy. And that's why I say, do you like Wilson? Well, I think I'd like him if he wasn't the president. But when you stick that in the presidency, something goes weird. And it's like we need his morality, but we also need something else. It's like missing it's like we need the winsome warmth and the love and the cunning of a fox. <laughs> we sort of want to weave that all together to get the right guy. Because people are saying, we have Jesus in our presidency. That's, that's actually the way they accused America. Like over in Europe, it's like, oh, you guys have Jesus on the throne over there. And they didn't say it very nicely. In other words, it wasn't translating as a helpful Christ, It was a guy who was all interested and focused on his own country and wanting just peace, peace, peace. What do we need to do to have peace? You can be correct and 100% wrong simultaneously. So obviously, maybe I shouldn't say obviously. I'm going to just say it. This is the crux of the reason I'm bringing this particular message up. Wilson is right. What Huerta did to Madero is wrong. His entire presidency is an incorrect way to ascend to any form of leadership. That brandy bottle is unhealthy for Huerta. Wilson's right. However, it's not Wilson's place to deal with that brandy bottle. And it's not Wilson's place to to teach the Mexican people how their presidency is supposed to work. It does not mean that Mexico can't ask for Wilson to assist, but Mexico isn't asking Wilson to assist. So Barbara Tuckman says it this way, Mexico's anarchy was then America's number one foreign problem. And the sound of shooting from over the border made more noise in American ears than the shooting in Europe. William II from Germany had succeeded. In other words, Americans were so distracted with this, uh, this Mexican revolution that we were having with them along the border, which a lot of this was sponsored by Woodrow Wilson stepping in the cow patty, that William was setting up for him. like, step right here, step right here, come over here and step into this. I mean, Wilson was perfectly suited to be played by William. And it's like, oh, it's painful to look back on. And yet the story actually, because I, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but it does turn on William. And it, it's a really good turn. And Wilson does sort of wake up somewhere along the line here, even though it takes him a while. Luke ten thirty eight through 42. Now it happened as they went that he, speaking of Jesus, entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with Mexico. Oh, I didn't say that. Martha was, Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So what I, I've used this as an illustration of this many times, what Martha is doing in desirous to prepare a table for Jesus, you know, she has the roast in the oven and she doesn't want it to burn, she wants the table to be set correctly. The Son of God is coming into her house. Do you blame her for wanting to be hospitable? Can you understand why having Mary sit in the other room when Jesus is coming in and she wants to get this perfect for God? Can you understand why that would be a little frustrating? Martha is correct. And yet Jesus is going to make it very clear. Martha, though you are correct... Because her desire is for hospitality and to do it right. I don't think any of us can complain about that. In fact, the story is sort of awkward if we're going to conclude that being hospitable and taking care of the roast and setting the table right is incorrect. That's not the point. It's that there is something more correct. In other words, when you are correct, but you forget that which is more correct, which is love. You see, there is something that is more correct that Paul is going to go out of his way And he's going to say, you know, the law is correct, but there's something even more correct, and that is love. It exceeds the law. It fulfills the law. And when you do that, it solves all the riddles. You see, our chief operation isn't to correct morally the world around us. It's to love them. You see, the Spirit of God has a job to correct moral behavior. But also, like, in a discipleship environment, which is a family, a family is a discipleship environment, or something like this, a church, there are points of contact where there is submission, where Huerta to comes to Wilson and says, could you help me with my government? I, I just don't feel like we're doing it right. And Wilson can then say, I would love to serve you in whatever way I can. But when there's a submission, then there is a transfer of knowledge and understanding. But where there isn't, it becomes abrasive and frustrating and it actually causes someone to go the opposite direction. It's like the nagging wife. A woman sees something that a man ought to be. She has like a blueprint of excellent manhood. Why God gave it to the woman instead of the man, I'm not exactly sure, right? Because a woman has a clearer sense of what a man ought to be than a man oftentimes does. A man's like, hey, I'm fine. I'm better than, I always use Chuck, so if your name's Chuck, sorry about that but I'm better than Chuck down the street, burp, scratch. And a man can easily just land in his territory and measure himself based on mediocre manhood around him and say, look, I'm doing better than that. Whereas a woman instinctively knows that a man is supposed to be so much more. And yet her means of dealing with that can be very Woodrow Wilson-esque. And she can nag and nag. And by the way, that has never helped one man grow up as a stronger man. Isn't that interesting? That if you, this is not going to help Mexico be stronger. And so with the nagging across the border, like, you need to do this better. You you guys should fix yourself here. I'm going to take care of this. When a woman handles a man that way, it backfires. And so as a result, there's this mysterious other option known as love. To truly, genuinely care for someone. Not because of their change. Because sometimes we say, you know, I'm going to love you if... And yet, the way God changes us is He influences us through His love. He really does. His care, His constancy, His patience with us. I don't know how many of you have marveled at the patience of God with you. And yet, would God marvel at your patience towards Huerta in your life? In other words, Mexico doesn't have their act together. They're right here on the border. And I mean, their world is affecting ours. I want them fixed. And yet, how you handle that Huerta or that... Mexico on your border is very, very telling of the state of your soul. So Mary is choosing something in this situation that is actually superior, and so that's important for us to recognize that we can oftentimes be motivated by the right things, but we emphasize the wrong aspect of Christianity. There is a devotional life, and we've talked about this many times at Ellersley, You know, theological excellence and doctrinal astuteness can be very very helpful in your spiritual life however if you do not have devotional excellence givenness to jesus christ in your inner man love for him on a personal level having a relationship with him you can have all sorts of knowledge and you end up harming the world instead of helping it yet it's not that the knowledge itself is incorrect it's that it's not grounded in a real relationship in that devotional fire and so if the fire goes out in the inner man, but you still have your, you know, your brain on fire with thoughts and ideas and, and, and truths and theologies, well, then you could actually be harming the world because you need to work out of that inner fire of love and care and compassion and kindness and mercy. This is the wellspring, the, the, the headwaters of the, of the life that changes the world. The Tampico Affair, April 6, 1914. So the USS Dolphin, this is uh, delivered by Barbara Tuckman, flagship of Admiral Admiral, anchored in Mexican waters off Tampico on April 6. So this is 1914, right? We're just about to head into World War I over in Europe. And this is all happening right simultaneously with this. On April 6, a gunboat from the Dolphin, carrying seven sailors and a paymaster, went ashore to load supplies. Tampico was then under martial law. A minor huertista, that's a follower, you know, uh, under the huerta government, officer, carrying out orders not to permit any ship to dock, arrested the Americans and marched them off to his superior. Oh, no. Oh, no. This officer, confronted by a live casus belly, and I defined it what that is. I don't know that I'm pronouncing it correct an act or situation provoking or justifying war. And so he's seen this situation that could easily provoke a war with the United States. Walking into his guardroom, instantly ordered the men return to the Dolphin, whither they were shortly followed by a Mexican officer bringing an explanation and the polite regrets of the Tampico commander. We are so sorry we did this, you know, and so please forgive us for this impropriety. And, you know, I... That, that's, that's good. And I, you know, I look at the situation, I could see the delicacy of it. You know, At this time, there's already sort of a delicate relationship between Mexico and America. And you could just imagine how that officer was like, you did what? You arrested American sailors? Uh, bring them back to their ship instantaneously with an apology. So he did. Admiral Mayo, the one over the ship, However, believing that American honor required a 21-gun salute in token of official Mexican apology, as well as punishment of the arresting officer, issued an ultimatum answerable within 24 hours. You either give us a 21-gun salute, and you discipline the officer that did this, or we're going to do something. You know, thinking, everyone's thinking, what are we going to do? We're going to do something. The ultimatum, hmm, I wonder how that will work. Well, who's the ultimatum to? Huerta. Okay, you can just imagine how Huerta is going to handle this. Now, this is America, you know, the Puritan from the north, once again, telling him what he is supposed to do, okay? Wilson has already tread on this territory, and now Admiral Mayo decides to whip out his little version of being a miniature Woodrow Wilson in this situation. So Barbara Tuckman says it this way, afterward, afterward, Admiral Mayo informed Washington of what he had done. Hardly knowing how it had happened, the government found itself plunged into a crisis from which neither Wilson, Brian, nor Daniels, remember all our pacifists leading the government, could think of any quick egress in case where to refuse to apologize. What are they supposed to do, go to war? These pacifists are supposed to go to war because they didn't give a 21-gun salute? The hour appointed by the ultimatum came, and went, but no guns saluted the American flag. Uh-oh, guys, this is, let me just tell you, this is why you don't want to enter someone else's jurisdiction in the first place and trot around as if it's yours. It leads to moments like this. Overnight, the Tampico affair swelled into a national insult. So this goes all over the country and everyone in America is offended. They arrested our sailors. I mean, this is how the media can turn something. Something that, I mean, if you're the Mexicans, you know, you're thinking, okay, that was a big blunder, we recognize that, but we did apologize, we did return them immediately, we didn't, you know, penalize them or harm them or do anything, we just returned them, and yes, it's an embarrassment, but could we leave it that way? Oh, no, this is blown up now, this is a national insult. They will not give a 21-gun salute. So diplomatic hell broke loose, Telegrams flashed, warships scurried to the Gulf, further ultimata clattered down on where head like hailstones. He would not yield. Listen to this. This is actually one of the most brilliant lines, and I, I chuckle every time I read it. Why, he asked with a wry logic, should the United States demand a salute from a government it did not recognize? It doesn't even recognize him as president, but now they're asking this president that they don't recognize to give them a 21-gun salute. And he's like, they don't even recognize me. Why should I speak to them? The Battle of Veracruz. This is actually going to lead to the Battle of Veracruz. Believe it or not, this is leading to war. April 21st, 1914. Wilson shrank from using force, but his hand reached out for the gun. Although, needless to say, and this is Barbara Tuckman. although, needless to say, Wilson cared little about a salute to the flag for its own sake, he narrowed the issue entirely to that question and left everyone feeling distinctly uncomfortable. Wilson will not budge on the 21-gun salute. If it's not a 21-gun salute in honor of America, then we're, uh, then we're, going, to, we're going to attack. And poor Wilson, the, the pacifist. You know, it's like this has to be the hardest thing for him. But he's gotten himself in so deep. He won't recognize this government. This government is spitting in his face. And they did not give a twenty-one gun salute, and everyone could, it's examining the situation, like in Wilson's government, is like, are we actually making an issue out of a twenty-one? 20- we're going to go to war over this. I mean, but at this point, your dignity's at stake. You know, I mean, you have to follow through. It's like that time when you tell your kids, it's like, if you do that, we're going home, and then they do that, and you paid eight hundred dollars for the tickets. Uh, what do you do now? I mean, there's a dignity here issue. How do you follow through and show consistency as a parent? Demanding the 21-gun salutes. So this is going to lead to what's called the Battle of Veracruz, and there's some great ironies. I wish this could have been uh, episode 21 because it would have been another 21 mixed in. But this is on April 21st in Veracruz. That, 21, that demand for a 21-gun salute, which they didn't get, is going to lead to 21 Americans dead. And it's an absolute disaster. I mean, there's nothing positive in this situation. However, what you need to realize is that Wilson and the Mexicans are being played. They're being distracted too. The Germans have their finger in all of this. This is what they want. They want and they want this for us. This isn't just what they want for Mexico and America. This is what the enemy is doing in us. He knows that there's a greater battlefield for us to be playing in. He knows that we have a calling, and so he wants to take what's on the border of our life and create skirmishes, and create where to type of scandals that distract us and take all of our energy. That's what Wilson is spending all of his energy on this. And you could say, that is pathetic when you have one of the most important things in world history taking place, and you're distracted with this Wilson. So simply put, we all have a where But how will we handle our sinister threat? We have skirmishes along our border because that's where the enemy knows to hit us. And as a result, we need to be very watchful how we play out our Christianity. Because, and I've said this before, unforgiveness is a very reasonable thing to conclude when someone comes up and bops you in the nose, calls you a few names, and then runs off. It's like, excuse me, what was that? And as a result, their misbehavior actually can create your misbehavior. And what is taking place in Mexico is misbehavior. That's wrong. However, it's creating a misbehavior on the, be- on the part of the Americans as well, which is actually taking them out of a position to end this war and save countless millions of lives. I don't don't want to speak to this too strongly because it gets into the what-ifs type of a situation. But if America mobilizes and activates its strength earlier in this process, we save many, many things. And if we save the Russian Revolution just alone, communism never is uh, taken aboard like it was in 1918. And so it's like there's certain things that are going to happen that I could look at this exact moment and say, Wilson, get your head out of the sand here, buddy. But that's the same thing we could say for all of us. You can just almost feel what God feels about us. It's like uh, we got a lost and dying world out there, and you're dealing with skirmishes along your border. Let's wake up. Let's get in the game, guys. So we all have a where to, but how will we handle our sinister threat? Was it right that where to killed Madera to usurp control of Mexico? No. Was it right that Huerta was a profane drunk? No. Was it right that the Huerta regime arrested Admiral Mayo's sailors? No. That was a mistake. So just as we all have a Huerta, we can all behave like a Wilson. We all have that susceptibility to be the moral superior in a situation with the truth of Jesus Christ and look down on those that don't have it. Instead of actually bending our knee and serving We're supposed to come beneath. You see, we're supposed to be the servant, not the tutor, at least in attitude. So dishing out judgment rather than mercy. When you start doing that, things go bad. Was it right that Wilson made Mexico's governmental leadership his business? You see, Wilson needs to mind his own business. Which, by the way, running the United States is plenty of a business just right there. Uh, But to try and run Mexico at the same time, that's tricky. He's also trying to run all the European conflict uh, over in Europe and tell everyone what they should do. And believe it, he did that. He told all the governmental leaders how they should end this war and what they should do. And they're looking back at him like, you have no idea what we're involved in here. And you're just speaking from over the Atlantic telling us all these wise statements that sound very moral and true. Was it right that Wilson compelled Mexico to adopt his moral position? Mm -mm. Was it right that Wilson demanded the wear to government to supply a 21-gun salute to the American flag? Well, uh, I I would say, if if I was a counselor in that situation, we need to remake this situation. I know that Admiral Mayo said that, but let's use this as an opportunity to bring healing instead of more conflict. Because if you press that 21-gun salute thing, I think it could go worse. I mean, I can say that now, of course, I wasn't back then, right? So I have 2020 vision, right? But it's also not, it doesn't take a brilliant person to see that. So, oh boy, this is a tough name. Venestiano Carranza. Venestiano Carranza, the result of Wilsonian diplomacy. So, Wilson, with all his heavy handedness, is going to get Huerta out of there. You know, why did Huerta get out? Because of Wilson. And all this, the Veracruz, all that is actually going to get Huerta uh, out. It worked in that regard. And this is the guy that Wilson was sponsoring because he called himself a constitutionalist, which to Wilson sounded really good. And this is what Barbara Tuckman said. From the day Carranza had replaced Huerta, he had been a disenchantment to Wilson, who complained, I've never known a man more impossible to deal with. His once-admired constitutionalism took the form of decrees against foreign properties. He proved no more amenable to American pressure than Huerta. And really, it seemed that he differed from Huerta only in that he had not murdered his predecessor. It's like, Wilson, maybe you're going to learn this isn't your business. So he's sponsoring Carranza and getting out one, and he ends up with even a greater problem. And that's going to lead to Viva Via. Wilson's new pet project. He doesn't like Carranza now, so he's going to take on a new project. And many of you have heard of Pancho Villa. And Pancho Villa is going to be a thorn in our side at some of the most critical moments, the critical hour, when we need to be dealing with a European crisis, and instead we're dealing with Pancho Villa, who ironically is Wilson's pet project. This is how Barbara Tuckman says it. Wilson's new candidate, Pancho Villa, was a swaggering rooster who would far more readily shoot a man in the belly than shake hands with him. You know the reason Wilson liked him? Is because he didn't drink, he wouldn't touch alcohol. And that is why Wilson liked him. Oh, he'll shoot you in the belly, but he doesn't, he's not an alcoholic like the others. I like this guy. <laughs> Wilson, Wilson, maybe you shouldn't be meddling in these things. I think this is a distraction we have a job to do we have a calling and how we handle the position that we've been given is very very important and to recognize our jurisdiction is an art form that we as the body of Christ need to grow in to recognize that it's not always our position to instruct sometimes it's our position to serve and to pray And to just give our life and recognize that it's not yet our position to speak. Sometimes it is, and there's a point in time where we must make an appeal, or we must say something, we must rise up and speak. Yes, but the two need to be worked together with a great dexterity that only the Spirit of God can define for us. But our job is not to be a Wilson, but to be truly a Jesus. Father, I pray that you would show us your priority in each situation, and that you would Lift our eyes from our border skirmishes to teach us how to invest ourselves in the greater purpose of why we are here. Lord Jesus, we just ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this.